our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Salvation Army, Teen Cancer America, VH1 Save the Music Foundation. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. This is going to be a very special week for me. It's actually Sunday that we're recording. And by Tuesday, when you hear this recording, when we release it, I will be on a stage in Dallas, Texas, speaking to a full auditorium of Salvation Army leaders at their Better Together conference in Dallas, Texas. I couldn't be more excited by this opportunity to address this amazing group of leaders who are providing all kinds of social services to people in need in this country and indeed around the world. And as a payback, you know, as a payback, small payback, I have with me today the commander, the national commander and commissioner, Kenneth Hodder of the Salvation Army USA. Ken, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Art, thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you today. Well, It'll be even more delightful when I get to see you Tuesday morning. We cannot wait for you to come. In fact, it's because of the fact that you're speaking, Art, that we have seen our attendance go through the roof. Really? Uh, Oh, yes. We had hoped to have about 1,200 at this conference, and we now have over 1,800. Oh, my goodness. We have folks from across the country in multiple disciplines, and we have about 15 different countries represented. So it's going to be quite a big event, and we're just thrilled that you're going to be part of it. Well, me too. And I'm looking forward to talking to the group about what it means to be better together. We're going to talk about impact. We're going to talk about faith, generosity, collaboration. You name it, we're going to cover it. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, trust. I'm going to cover a lot in my 35 minutes. 
Fantastic. And I'm That's really looking forward to sharing what I know, what I sense, what I feel. And I just think this is going to be one of the more exciting moments that I've had in my life since I joined uh, working in, in the nonprofit sector. I just wanted to get your sense of what the conference is all about. I have a sense of what it's about, but I want you to tell our listeners why you're coming together and what the conference is intended to achieve. Well, the Salvation Army from time to time will hold professional development conferences for various disciplines. On this occasion, we decided to combine conferences for those who specialize in social services with a conference for those who specialize in community relations and development and combine that with a, a conference for those who are involved in emergency disaster services and top it all off by bringing in officers from across the country, as well as representatives from the Salvation Army's international work, uh, a variety of places around the world. And we decided to do that simply because now is the moment at which we recognize we have a tremendous opportunity to make a huge impact on the lives of people, both in this country and around the world. We've chosen the theme better together because we recognize the hunger that people sense for being with one another, for working together, for addressing problems in a collaborative fashion. And the response that we have seen is an indication that we have tapped into something that runs very deep, not just in the Salvation Army, but I think in our culture and in the human spirit itself. So that's the reason we've chosen this time. That's the reason we brought it all together and why we think it's going to prove so effective and so powerful. Well, we're going to get into the work of the Salvation Army during this talk, Ken, but I wanted to talk a little bit about you. I always want to open up our guests, their lives to our listeners, because most of the time we look at leaders of major organizations like the Salvation Army, although there's nothing quite like the Salvation Army. I'll start with that. But we look at leaders of organizations and we just assume that they were destined somehow to be in that role. And we know that that's not really the case. People don't just drop in out of the sky to lead these organizations. There's a path that they took. There are decisions that they made. There are experiences that shaped them, which ultimately led them to become the leaders of these various organizations. I am curious, Ken, about your particular story. Hmm. How did you become connected to the Salvation Army and what was it that made you stay? Well, uh, I should begin by saying that I'm a sixth generation Salvationist. My family roots go back to the beginning of the Salvation Army in 1865 in the East End of London. William Booth, our founder, was concerned about uh, the lives that people were living in uh, the worst uh, parts of the United Kingdom as a result of the Industrial Revolution. He was concerned about them physically and spiritually. And my ancestors uh, were amongst those to whom he ministered. So it started a generational connection with the Salvation Army. 
But I must confess to you that I never intended to be a Salvation Army officer. I was uh, born into the Army. The Army, of course, uh, some of your listeners may not know, is also a denomination of the Protestant Church as well as a nonprofit organization. And so I was reared in the Salvation Army as my uh, church. I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior at an early age, but I was convinced that I wanted to practice law. So I grew up and directed my attentions toward law school from which I graduated in 1983, started a corporate practice in Los Angeles, and frankly, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a wonderful opportunity to do exciting work. I thought it was going to be what I did for the rest of my life. But a few years later, uh, the Lord uh, called me uh, back to this work. I was doing very well in the law, had no intention of coming back. But one day he just touched my heart and I knelt at my desk and I felt that he was calling me back to my roots. So my wife and I left our respective careers. We entered the Salvation Army's training college. And that was a little more than 35 years ago. Wow. And if the Salvation Army would let us do so, we'd do it all over again. Wow. Now, that's that's amazing. And, you know, there I'll tell you in our little church, uh, Christ Church Clinton, which you attended, which was wonderful to have you attend our little church. But we're seeing that young people who go through the church, they get to an age and then you don't see them. And then all of a sudden they start coming back. Yes. And it was my story to some extent. You know, I grew up going to church just about every Sunday. I sang in the choir and my brother and I rarely missed a Sunday in church. But then we went to college and I got married, had a family and things just kept me from going back. Mm-hmm. And then it must have been, Ken, 35 years later that I decided because of a conversation I was having with my wife that it might be worth just checking in again. Yes. And I went back and it felt like home. Wonderful. And I've been pretty active in our church since. So, you know, you you are developed a certain way, right? With a certain orientation, you can leave it, but it's still there with you. Yes. And then when you come back, it feels like home. Well, absolutely. So it must have felt like home to you. Oh, without a doubt. You know, Blaise Pascal's reference to the fact that there's a God-shaped hole uh, in every human spirit that nothing else can fill is something that I have seen again and again in the course of our ministry. And I see it particularly today, Art, Uh, You and I share that experience, but when you see things like the the enormous impact of The Chosen, of the He Gets Us campaign, of the Asbury Revival, uh, of things like this in which faith is being rekindled in the hearts and the minds of young people and people at middle age and older people, uh, I think we're seeing a moment in our country particularly at which people are sensitive to spiritual things and they want to come home, yeah. as you put it. 
I think that's very exciting. And that's one of the reasons behind this conference. We think that this is a moment that we would regret not taking advantage of in terms of changing people's perspective if we didn't have events like this. Well, you know, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but we're also seeing a decline in people attending church and other religious denominations and um, religious faith traditions. And that is having, obviously, a dramatic effect on giving, which obviously this podcast is all about. You know, what can we do to encourage people to give and serve? And um, I wanted to just sort of get your reaction to what that might mean. You know, both of you and I serve on a generosity commission. But before I do that, let me just ask you one further question about your personal connection to this work. You grew up in this movement and in this organization. And you came back to it because you thought you could deliver something on behalf of people. At what point can did you feel that you're driven to serve that you're driven? Now, I know you had this moment where Christ called you back. In addition to that, I want to know if there's anything you could tell us about why you believe Christ is using you in this particular way. How has he prepared you for this? Well, I think you and I would uh, both testify to the fact that An individual only finds complete fulfillment in life when they surrender that life to Christ. It is in that moment of complete surrender that we turn our futures over to the Lord and he weaves a future for us greater than we could have ever imagined for ourselves. For me, that moment came a few years after I became a Salvation Army officer. I was serving in a small Salvation Army Corps in Southern California, and we had a woman come to our facility who was facing drug charges, and her son had been involved in dealing. So I'll never forget going to the court and standing there in my Salvation Army uniform, speaking on behalf of this young woman whose life had been torn apart who was facing a terrible future, a very bleak future. And it was as if all the strands of my life had come together. Uh, My desire to proclaim the gospel, the legal training that I had acquired over the years, uh, my desire to have an impact on people, to make the world a better place. And I think that kind of experience is something to which Uh, I consider myself privileged uh, to have experienced and that those who uh, follow the Lord, those who accept him and then turn their lives over to him uh, can all identify with. So that is what has driven me over the years uh, to make a difference. Those moments when you can just sense that you're doing something far greater than you could have ever done had you followed what you thought was best for yourself. Yeah. Well, and I would want to say to our listeners that 
you're not alone. There are multitudes of people in this army that you lead. Let's talk about some of the numbers of others who similarly see the world through the lens that you just shared with us. What are we talking about in terms of the numbers of people who are part of this enormous movement of global support and help for people in need? Well, Art, the Salvation Army is in 133 countries around the world. In this country, the Salvation Army consists of about 3,200 Salvation Army officers. They are the clergy of the Salvation Army as a church. Our laity, uh, those who wear the blue epaulets, our soldiers number about 420,000 people. We have about 50,000 employees uh, and about uh, 1.3 million volunteers last year who've helped us to continue the work of the Salvation Army, both spiritually and physically. The Salvation Army is in every zip code. We have about 7,000 locations. And it's just a privilege to serve all the communities in which we find ourselves and meet as many needs as we do. Well, the Salvation Army is now in 133 countries around the world. We've just recently opened our work uh, in uh, Guinea, in Western Africa. In this country, the Salvation Army consists of about 15,000 officers who are the ordained clergy, about 65,000 soldiers who are the laity, about 80,000 employees, and approximately 2 million volunteers. The Army has facilities in every zip code of the nation. Uh, we serve approximately 25 million people a year, uh, and all of it designed to help each person's need, uh, not, only, uh, not only to meet every person's need, but to assure them that uh, we are doing it because they are loved and cared for, not just by the Salvation Army, uh, but by the Lord. So Ken, help me appreciate the work that you're actually doing now. What are some of the programs and projects that you're undertaking that bring you some of the most joy and satisfaction? That's an excellent question. The Salvation Army is designed to do whatever a community needs to have done. Our mission is a simple one, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in his name without discrimination. So when we send officers to a particular community, they simply have one instruction, do what that community needs to have done and do it in the name of Christ. So the army will look a little different in every community. In some places, the emphasis will be on homelessness. In other places, addictions. Some places, senior services. Some places, youth character building programs. Uh, some places, emergency disaster services. Whatever the gap happens to be in that local area, that's what the Salvation Army is intending to uh, direct its energies toward. Wow. And your mission, of course, is broad enough to allow you to extend into any area that's needed. And I, I love that because when we talk about 
meeting a person's need. They may be hungry and we give them a meal, but they're hungry for a reason. And that reason may continue to go unfulfilled if all we're doing is feeding them. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So the idea that this mission is so broad, it means that you could hand a person off to another agency if necessary. So collaboration would obviously be key to what you're doing. But you could also develop those programs internally if necessary as well. And I guess you've done both. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Collaboration is something that the Army believes in uh, thoroughly. Because we have such a large geographic footprint, uh, collaboration will extend within the Salvation Army in all kinds of ways. But you're absolutely right, Art. When there is something that is already being done by another organization, uh, take, for example, mental health services, an area in which the Salvation Army has not traditionally directed its energies. We will work with all kinds of agencies to make sure that the people that we're helping get the assistance that they need. We will work with anyone uh, for uh, any length of time in any capacity if it's going to help that person uh, that we're concerned about. So the Salvation Army, therefore, is entirely apolitical. Uh, We have no... uh, political philosophy or agenda. We don't tend to speak out on social issues because our focus is on that one person who needs help. And how can we help them? How can we make a difference for them? How can we make them conscious of the fact that they matter, that they're created in the image of God? So collaboration is is very much uh, into the, the warp and woof, if you will, of the Salvation Army. Very good. And I think that is very wise because, and I'll be talking about this tomorrow, we're in a world of constant change and rapid change. And one of the reasons that collaboration is so important is that we have to innovate. So if I were to ask you, I'm sure you would agree that what you're doing today is in many ways different than what you did 15 years ago programmatically, right? So And what you may be doing five to 10 years from now will be different than what you're doing today. And I think collaboration is important because we need to collaborate to innovate. We don't necessarily have all the ideas, but collectively by working with others, we can come up with new value, new programs and services that don't exist right now. We can ideate, we can try new things, we can spread the risk of not things not working out the way we want them to with others. And we can come up with better solutions. We can reach new markets. So many things we can do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In the early days of the Salvation Army, and just to give one example of that, uh, William Booth was struck by uh, what was referred to then as Fossey Jaw. Matches used to be made with phosphorus, and the people who would create these matches were working in unprotected uh, uh, environments, and the phosphorus would leach into their skin, 
into their bone structures so that when you were in a darkened room, you could see the outline of an individual's jaw wherever the bone structure came close to the surface of the skin. And he found that absolutely unacceptable. So William Booth decided that we needed a new process to make matches. So he went out and he worked with some uh, chemists and created safety matches, which we know today. So the Salvaged Army established a match factory. Uh, we started to make these new matches. The market caught on. Fossey Jaw became a thing of the past, and the Salvation Army closed its match factory and moved on to the next issue. It's the kind of thing you have to constantly do, and you work with different people along the way, because society changes, needs change, and you want to be responsive. Absolutely, for sure. Well, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk to you about this work we're doing with the Generosity Commission. And I've said on the podcast many times that there is an alarming decline in the number of families that are giving to charitable organizations. We don't know if that is affecting overall generosity. People may be giving to other things, not to organizations. But it is concerning that so many people have decided not to give to charities. And I think the statistics are something like over a 20-year period ending in 2018, I think I'm correct in saying. We've gone from about 66% of families giving to a charity down to 49.5%. And these trends continue. Um, the Salvation Army is perhaps one of the biggest engines for the collection of small individual donations. I don't know what percentage that makes up of your total revenue. I think I saw something like over almost $4 billion that you generate. I don't know what percentage that is, but people giving whatever percentage that means to your revenue is an important indication of their support for what you're doing and their investment in that change that they want to see people experience. And I just wonder if you've seen any changes in what's going on at the kettle. I know your revenues are fine overall, but I'm just focused now on the kettle. And if there is change, what do you think we can do to assure that we shore that up. Because I think the kettle gives us the opportunity to express our generosity at a moment when we may not even be thinking about it because it's right there. And I just wonder if, if that is being affected then there's truly something going on. The kettle campaign every year raises about 100 to $120 million across the country in small $1.50 uh, donations. So it's millions and millions and millions of people who are putting a small amount in. And that is because I think so many people do have a Salvation Army story. They were either helped or they know someone who was helped. So the Salvation Army is a somewhat unique case. 
but it does not detract from the point you make about people giving generally. And I think that there are several things that certainly I've learned from the Generosity Commission uh, that affect that giving tendency that we can have an impact on. The first is, I think people need to have a memory of having been helped. They need to have a sense of gratitude for the help that they received. Now, if there are large numbers of people who don't have that memory, uh, then they have to be educated further as to why it's important in order to give. We're also going to face a general decline in trust in the society, the people's trust in government, in business, in the church itself has declined. Uh, all of the scandals over the course of the last few decades have eroded that sense of trust in institutions. And when people are skeptical of where their money is going, uh, that's going to cause them to hesitate to give. The third thing I think that's important is uh, whether or not the society as a whole or the individual is optimistic about the future. Do they believe that there's a better future ahead? Uh, American exceptionalism, if you can refer to it as that, has always been in part based upon the notion that there is a destiny for our country to continue to provide that beacon of liberty, to continue to provide that dream to anyone who comes from around the world to be a part of this great enterprise that is the American experiment. Are we still believers in that optimistic future. So you've got all of these little things that are affecting giving. So how do you reverse it? Well, I think you work hard to establish trust. You work hard to show that there is reason to be optimistic about the future, comparing it with instances in the past where people have said the very same thing uh, about uh, how America has changed uh, uh, the future is not as bright as it used to be, which I don't think is the case, but many people perhaps have been subjected to that, that idea and feel that that is the case. And also to make people more aware of the needs of their neighbors. Uh, this is the education piece to which I referred earlier. Education is something that you and I have an obligation, Art, to do something about. You from the Wise Giving Alliance telling people about what the organizations are doing. Uh, it, are they doing it credibly? Are they transparent? Are they doing it uh, effectively and efficiently? From the Salvation Army's point of view, uh, are we being good stewards of the funds that are given to the Salvation Army? Uh, are we continuing to earn that trust that has been built up over the years? These are things that we can do and that we must do at this moment in history. I like to think that what uh, uh, Robert Putnam wrote about in the upswing uh, is going to take place. He wrote in his most recent book that what we are living in now is very similar to the Gilded Age. Dramatic inequities, inequalities, uh, economic uh, challenges, and yet uh, an atmosphere of technological innovation. And he suggests that just like the Gilded Age, if we decide 
that we want to turn things around. And in those days, they referred to it as progressivism. Uh, we might call it something different today. Uh, we can do the very same thing, that we can turn around the spirit of the country and that we can continue to thrive and, and achieve a tremendous future for all of us in the days to come. I am firmly optimistic about the future. I think uh, I have seen so many different lives changed and being changed on a regular basis now uh, that I would find it impossible to think that we couldn't do this on a societal level. So all of that to say we can do it and we must do it at this moment in our history. Beautifully said. I would only add that it will be wonderful if more people believed that they have some agency over the future, that we don't have to be victims of it, that we can build the future that we want. We have this power to do that. And uh, I know that for the average person, you know, you're getting up every day, you're going to work and you're uh, dealing with family matters and other challenges that come before you. But little things you might be able to do to help shape the future would be things like having conversations with younger family members and helping them appreciate what they can be doing, why their education is so important, why they can be valuable members of their society as they grow up. Giving young people and older people, too, a little hand up when they need help. Spreading a good word of cheer to someone who may be a bit downtrodden. These things have a bigger effect on people's morale and spirit than we imagine. In fact, there are studies that show it. There are studies that show that the little we do, we think it's a little thing. But we might give it a three out of a 10, Ken. But the person receiving it treats it like an eight out of 10. And so if we could just do little things for each other that don't really take a lot from us, it could literally change the world. And I think what you're talking about with optimism and this idea that we should be hopeful about the future is really important. The most damaging thing to a society is not fear of technology or even the tremendous polarization that we're seeing. I think the biggest concern that any society has is when the people lack hope. And so I think our biggest job is to make sure that the light that lives within us, that light of hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today, is so important. And that, my friend, is the agency that I think we have over the future. Oh, absolutely. I believe it with all of my heart. And if people have a sense of hope, everything changes. Uh, their giving patterns change. They're more willing to get involved with their neighbors. They're addressing problems uh, locally together as a team. They're, they're voting. Uh, they're becoming more civically engaged. Uh, everyone wins when there's that sense of hope. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, Ken, I know you have to get ready for tomorrow and the rest of the week. So I don't want to hold you up anymore. 
But I, I know this, that there are going to be some people from the Salvation Army listening to this podcast. And I want to encourage them to stay engaged with us, to send us notes about episodes that we produce. I just want to tell them right now how honored I am to, at this moment, probably be speaking a little bit ahead of time. Right now, I'm not quite there yet. I'm looking forward to speaking to and seeing as many of them, as many of the 1,800 participants in this event as I can in greeting them. And I'm just, again, very honored and very, very grateful that I'm getting the opportunity to know you, a man who has literally changed in many ways my continents about what's possible in the world because you can continue to see the good in people. You know, I once said about a friend of mine at his funeral, and I'm going to say it about you. You're still here, thank God. I plan to be for some time yet. That's great to hear. (laughs) I said that this gentleman looked in everyone's eyes and he saw Jesus when he looked at them. I think that's you. Thank you. I think that's you. That's, uh, that's, that's high praise indeed. And, uh, just like you are every day when I wake up, I thank the Lord for another day of life and, and, uh, seek to serve him as best I can by helping those uh, who need a hand up as you suggest. So we're just so looking forward to having you and your lovely wife, Yolanda here with us. I'm confident that the army in this country will be stronger because of your participation in this event. Well, thank you. Well, and to all of our listeners, you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and I hope you subscribe to the show. And if you want to make a donation to the Heart of Giving podcast, you can do that, too, by going to give.org, and we will, believe me, put that donation to great use. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.